Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. My background is that I finished my PhD focused on AI and robotics at Stanford this year, and now I work at a generative AI startup. And I'm Jeremy. I'm the other host. Jeremy Harris is my last name. Um, I work in AI safety at a company I co-founded called Gladstone AI, and uh, yeah, do AI safety, AI alignment, AI policy stuff. Indeed. So we cover kind of two different ends of the spectrum in a way, which is a, a fun mix. Before we dive into the news, we will do a quick ad read as we've been doing for quite a few episodes now. We are going to tell you about the Super Data Science podcast. This podcast is, as far as is possible to tell, the most listened to data science podcast podcast. They cover machine learning, AI, data careers, a whole ton of stuff. The host is John Crone, the chief data scientist and co-founder of the machine learning company Nebula, the author of the best-selling book Deep Learning Illustrated, and for a couple of times now, a guest co-host on this very podcast. There's a ton of episodes, there's like 700 of them, and there's uh, two episodes released every week. So you'll be sure to find whatever topic you're interested in if you go look at their bag catalog. Yeah, we recommend it as another source to learn about AI aside from this one. Yeah, I, I really think it's a great compliment to this podcast because obviously we cover like big picture news stories, um, you know, and a lot of them. But if you want to dive into anything in real kind of detail, talk to the the people behind the news, John, I mean, he's just great at it and be very, very knowledgeable. So, you know, obviously, if you've if you've listened to him as he's come on the show before, you'll know. But uh, if you haven't, check out those episodes. Uh, he's he's really on top of his game. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm personally a fan of the Super Data Science podcast. I don't just say that because it's an ad. Um, I, I'm kind of biased because I know John from back in the day. But uh, yeah. Yeah, if nothing else, you can listen to the episodes uh, with Jeremy as a <laughs> interviewee, right? And then uh, might find those interesting. Well, that's done. And let us just go straight into the news of this episode, starting with tools and apps. First, we have Adobe is upgrading Photoshop's generative AI model and releasing more for Illustrator and Express. So Adobe has had a slate of announcements. They had had their Max uh, conference uh, pretty recently. And one of the main announcements has been with regards to three new generative AI models. They released Firefly Image 2, Firefly Vector, and Firefly Design. Firefly Image is their text-to-image model, similar to DALI and MidJourney. And as you might expect, this new iteration of it pretty much produces better images, more detail, better color contrast. And there's also new ways to make the images. You have AI-powered editing capabilities and prompt guidance for various things like that. On top of that, 
is now another model uh, with Firefly Vector that produces vector graphics, which is pretty unique. I don't think we've seen actually a vector graphics model before. And finally, he also has uh, Firefly Design, which creates templates uh, for various purposes like social media posts and online advertising. This is uh, kind of the main news, but there's actually been you know even more announcements I've had. And all of these are already available in beta versions and will be released more widely eventually. Yeah, and as we've covered before, Adobe is like super leaning into this generative AI, like generative image stuff in particular. Um, we'll, we'll cover a story actually with Google, I want to say almost catching up on the legal side. Adobe's famous for offering indemnity or indemnification rather for um, people. Basically, if you use their uh, generated images and get sued, um, they'll they'll back you up in court type thing. That's kind of the idea. They believe so much in their right to the copyright for the uh, data they use to train their system on that uh, that's what they're committing to. That's because they use their own data, right? Like Adobe has a lot of their own data they can use for this purpose. Um, one consequence of that though, is that the user experience is kind of like interesting. You run into these obstacles when you want to generate uh, like kind of well, copyrighted images. Uh, I was talking to a graphic designer last week and she was saying like, she's found it a little frustrating that if she wants to have like, I don't know, Kermit the Frog or something uh, on, a, on a rocket ship or, or whatever, you have like these really weird outputs sometimes because there is no copyrighted material in the back end, And so the system has no frame of reference. It's not like it can even make like an, a non-copyrighted, slightly modified version of Kermit the Frog. It will just not know who that character is. So you just get like, whatever an AI would think a character named Kermit the Frog would look like, which like is a little weird. Yeah, um, reinventing it from scratch, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is kind of interesting, right? It's like if you've ever wondered, what does a guy named Rick look like probably to an AI? You know, that's kind of like what it's doing with some of these copyrighted uh, things. Um, there are safeguards. You know, that's always part of the discussion here whenever we talk about generative AI um, designed to protect against abuse of the system. Um, as always, really, really unclear about how uh, robust those safeguards even theoretically can be, because we've seen so many jailbreaking strategies that just seem to melt all of these safeguards away. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a, a really interesting time for, uh, for Adobe. They're pushing ahead pretty aggressively. It sure is. And uh, this article at least says that apparently the original Firefly model has been used to generate over three billion images to date which is pretty crazy so i do feel like we like often firefly doesn't get mentioned when you're talking about delhi and mid journey and so on but i would imagine that for people working in the industry who already use adobe tools firefly just makes a lot of sense as your go-to thing to use and and so i can't imagine it's actually being used a ton with maybe less discussion going out about it outside the design sphere or something. Well, and I think that's it, right? Like the vibe I got talking to that graphic designer last week really was, you know, she was in Adobe. She was in, you know, whatever it is, Adobe Studio or whatever, because that's what they use. And so for her, it's like they're rolling out these features natively and all of a sudden her world is being populated by these easily accessible AI tools. So I think a lot of it is just like, yeah, like um, distribution and market capture, like people leaning into their existing audiences. I, I think that's exactly right. 
And next story, character.ai introduces group chats where people and multiple AIs can talk to each other. So we've touched on character.ai a couple of times now. It's a really popular uh, little, I guess, chat GPT alternative with a focus on talking to characters. So you can talk to like, you know, fake version of Elon Musk, AI version of Einstein, all of these sorts of things, tons of different types of characters and it's a really popular app so apparently it has close to 30 million monthly active users globally and 7 million in the us uh, so it's pretty huge and this news article is about how they're rolling out a new feature where you have group chats so now instead of just talking to one character as was the norm you can now talk in the sort of group chat with multiple AI characters. So for instance, you can talk to a bunch of scientists, Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, Nikola Tesla, and Stephen Hawking all at once. And you can have your friends in the mix too. So it's kind of like just having like a group chat thread, right, uh, and jumping on. Uh, this is a premium feature. So you would need to subscribe for $10 per month. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty logical progression and it'll be interesting to see, I guess, what happens because, uh, AI is talking to AIs with multiple people on the mix. Uh, I don't know. I could definitely see some shenanigans popping up with friends like those who needs friends. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Uh, but yeah, character is, is, a, you know, obviously a very well-known name now they're backed by Andreessen Horowitz, which is uh, maybe notorious is the wrong word, but famous for being very AI forward, like very, um, let's say, AI accelerationist after pivoting really hard from crypto. Um, they, they moved all in on AI. And uh, I think this bet may turn out to be uh, perhaps more fruitful for them. Um, but yeah, they, they backed Character AI back in the day. Now, of course, Character AI, not the only company doing that. Uh, we've seen a bunch of others, Snapchat, um, meta as well, coming out with kind of analogous tools. And so people are kind of starting to wonder, you know, how tenable is the mode around character AI? They do, as you said, Andre, they've got 30 million monthly active users. That's a damn good start. Um, but the question, obviously, about how hard it is for people or how much loyalty people will have to a given platform um, is, is really not yet answered. They have raised $150 million so far. So, you know, decent amount of funding, um, not necessarily for like a, a model developer, but certainly for an app company. Um, so sort of unclear where they'll end up landing on that. But uh, yeah, it's a, an interesting company. And definitely, you know, if the future of social interaction is going to come from somewhere, it seems like it's going to come from a company like character.ai for, for better or for worse. And uh, it seems like they're starting to make some money. This article does note that their estimated gross in-app purchase revenue is $1.3 million, which is you know not super big considering they have 7 million active users in the US but features like this could push them up and and make them you know more profitable uh, which i guess is another interesting aspect of this when you have a chat product it's a similar problem to copilot where it's expensive to allow for just like long chats and if you're doing a monthly subscription if people really like chatting with your characters, you're going to need a pretty expensive monthly subscription to just cover that. 
and that, and that's gross in app purchase, right? That's not like a net of the yeah. compute expenses. So they're they're like burning money in in the in the coal pit, whatever the term is, um, of of yeah the their GPUs. Um, it's also weird, like you look at the the ratio of what they're making to what they're spending, or, or sorry, what they've raised rather, right? One hundred fifty million um, in Series A funding this year, and then by contrast, one point three million in revenue. I guess that's yeah, lifetime gross in app. So that's everything they've made. That's um, not yeah. counting their web uh, revenue still. So not everything, yeah. but you know, part of it, a big part of it. Yeah, good, sorry, good point. I meant everything like time, time, timeline-wise, right? So it's their lifetime gross in app. But you're right. There's there's probably more coming in from the website, but it's still overall like it looks like we're in the orbit of like I don't know if it's 50x, if it's 20x multiples. But these are really really big multiples. Um, it's unusual for a company to raise this much when uh, actually not even most. I'm sorry, it, it, that's just how much they raise. The valuation is going to be probably around like you know, five or 10 times that amount. So these are really, really big multiples. It implies that basically all of their values in the future, at least that's what the investors think, that, you know, essentially these guys are going to grow like crazy. Um, I think at this point, the really big question, if I was an investor, is like, it's all about monetization. Like, look, you've got three, 30 million monthly active users already. That's, you know, it's not like you're saturating the market yet, but you're like, you're taking a bite out of it. You need to start to turn that into revenue somehow. And so I think that's really going to start to be the question, not just with character.ai, but with so many of these companies, you know, because of the cost of compute, because of the competition in the space, it, at some point, it's got to start to make money. It's got to start to make sense. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this ends up turning out. It'll be interesting. And uh, just a thought, if you are a big user of character.ai, feel free to email us at contact at lastweekin.ai. Personally, I haven't played around with much. And I'd be curious to hear, you know, if you're a big fan, what makes you be a big user of it as opposed to something like ChatGPT or other possible things. Moving on to the lightning round and still kind of on the same topic, uh, Meta rolled out basically character.ai with their uh, celebrity chat. And so this story is Kendall Jenner became Billy. Meta's AI celebrities face more resistance than enthusiasm. So this article kind of covers some of the responses that people have had and in particular, some of the skepticism and concern around this rollout. So basically, some fans have questioned whether the celebrities agreed to this sort of thing, whether uh, some of the things that the AI bots say uh, that maybe are not entirely true to what that real person would say, uh, you know, how that um concerns fans things like that and yeah so this is kind of a small overview of some example chats and comments people have things like you know that's scary this is scary i don't like this i'm so confused yikes creepy (laughs) etc and it, it is worth noting that in addition to chat meta also rolled out this kind of AI generated visuals. Stickers. Yeah. Uh, well, stickers, but also when you chat, there's like a little artificial face 
for a character oh, yeah. when you're talking to. So I guess that adds to the creepiness factor. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, the initial reactions and when you actually make a deal to have a real person as an AI you can talk to, uh, people might not be super into it. Yeah, it, it also raises questions about like what does this deal actually look like from the actor's standpoint or the the, the celebrity standpoint? Because you know if, if you have a model that doesn't actually faithfully represent what they would say or that generates you know harmful or, or whatever outputs every once in a while, like to what extent does that actually bleed off onto that celebrity's brand long term? You know, is there is there risk exposure there? Um, you know, maybe early signs that that's not a nothing risk. Uh, sort of interesting. We'll we'll see where this all goes. Uh, to expand a little bit on the details, there's also confusion because the AI avatars look and talk like their identity, you know, real person, but they aren't actually meant to be that person. So uh, things like Charlie D'Amelio is Coco, a dance enthusiast. And as it said in the headline, uh, Kendall Jenner is Billy and no BS fellow fighter to the death. Uh, I don't know. Snoop Dogg is Dungeon Master, a choose your own invention with a Dungeon Master. So these are like chatbots, it seems, that are talking about different topics. There's like an anime obsessed sailor and training, a detective partner in crime solving. That's Paris Hilton. Is Amber a detective partner in crime solving? So they're going for this weird mix of real people and AI characters that aren't those people. And I think that's a big reason of why there's so much, you know, of a kind of creepy and, and confused vibe as a response. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, UX questions abound, but uh, this is part of, I mean, Meta's been really sort of swing for the fancy on a lot of its new product releases around AI in particular. So, you know, it's not surprising to see them hitting a couple of a couple of snags early on here. Um, the question is iteration speed, you know, how fast are these issues going to get fixed? Will they get fixed? Um, or will this become another sort of startup graveyard idea? All right, next up we have Dropbox redesigns its web interface and releases AI-powered Dash in open beta. So new interface, new shiny, it's <laughs> new box, same great serial inside uh, Dropbox here. And uh, they got a new action bar, uh, redesigned file previews, and just a, what they call a cleaner overall look. Um, they're also releasing Dash, which is a universal search feature. It's powered by AI. Um, so it's a, in open beta right now, so not necessarily like widely distributed and available to everyone, uh, or well, um, it is distributed to everyone, but I guess not as a finished polished product. And um, it basically just allows you to find your work across multiple apps and tabs. So like one search across all your Dropbox apps and tabs, something that I at least have felt the need for back when I used Dropbox. I don't anymore, but uh, kind of an interesting use case. Um, they're also launching Dropbox AI, which is going to expand. It's another AI-powered feature. It's going to cover basically everything in your user account. So you can ask questions to receive summaries of your files. And that's something that we've seen a lot of lately, especially with things like browser plugins and stuff like that, You know, article summarizers and things like that. But now seeing that applied to your own data, this is kind of an interesting move. Um, definitely one of the more sort of 
practical use cases, it seems, of generative AI. Summarization is obviously a strong point for LLMs because it does reduce, you know, when the LLM is, is summarizing text that it's already kind of seeing in its uh, context window and its prompt, um, it tends to make fewer mistakes. So you tend to see less hallucination. It's more grounded. So uh, anyway, definitely a, a kind of probably more practical uh, use case for this kind of tech and a, a less speculative one too. Dropbox AI, this feature for summarization is still in alpha and currently rolling out, but uh, I'm sure if you're using Dropbox, you'll be able to use it soon. And on to applications and business, starting with Google Cloud pledges a shared fate offering legal indemnification for customers. So this is the topic we mentioned previously that we've discussed a few times now where there's this notion of indemnification, which is basically like if you get sued because you used our AI tool, we're going to cover that expense. Uh, you know, We are going to protect you from any legal repercussions for using uh, our stuff for things like copyright infringement. And that's what Google Cloud has announced, similarly to Microsoft, Adobe, and Canva. Now, it is worth noting that this policy applies to things like the Vertex AI development platform and Duet, but not to Bard. And it doesn't apply if you are intentionally using generating output uh, generated output to infringe on copyright. So there's you know some subtlety, but broadly it does seem to point to indemnification as being a very standard tool in these companies that want people to adopt AI. Yeah, fascinating that Bard is excluded. Kind of makes you makes you ask those questions. You know, wh why is Bard excluded exactly? You know, Google is really confident that as long as you know, as as they put it, uh, as long as you're playing your part and and being you know reasonable with with their other tools, they will indemnify you. They have confidence in their legal position is the claim, um, but not with Bard. Interesting. Okay. Uh, the, the other thing that is quite interesting here, I think, is you know, strategically, it makes sense for Google to be doing this as much as they can, um, just because their fate is increasingly going to be entangled with the fate of their customers anyway. Right? If it turns out that you actually can get sued uh, for using the outputs of some you know, copyright infringing uh, image generator, for example, um, then that undermines a really potentially fruitful business model that Google and other companies might want to exploit. And so um, really by putting essentially its, its legal muscle behind its customers, uh, Google might actually be you know, in a position to help support those customers, to help them win cases uh, that might be precedent setting. So they have an incentive actually strategically to make sure that the first cases that, that um, come down on this issue turn out a certain way. And so the indemnification, like I'm no legal expert, but it seems to me that that does align with that, uh, that uh, outlook as well. So sort of interesting to see, you know, not to be too cynical about this, but again, I, I'm, I am genuinely fascinated by the omission of BARD from this, uh, from this set of protections because, you know, it's, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And we've seen there are similar concerns around other companies' LLMs and the extent to which they might you know, violate copyright. There are ongoing lawsuits about exactly that. Um, so interesting, actually interesting. I wonder if this would even affect the kind of legal arguments for those lawsuits. You know, if if Google, for example, is being sued for copyright infringement at some point, does it hurt them that they are actually not uh, apparently confident enough, perhaps in uh, in Bard? 
to, uh, to indemnify their users? Does that suggest that they believe that they may be in, infringing on copyright or that, that their users may infringe on copyright by using uh, Bard's output? So I don't know. Again, not a legal expert, but the, you know, the, the vibes seem, to, seem kind of there to me, at least uh, when it comes to this story. A lot of subtleties in this topic. Uh, I think notably, it is worth noting that OpenAI hasn't moved in in this direction with DALI or ChatGPT. Microsoft uh, did this uh, announcement only like a month and a half ago in early September. They announced Copilot copyright commitment to customers, and that does appear to be larger in scope. That's pretty much covering... Uh, everything under that Copilot brand. So it includes the generative AI in World, Excel, PowerPoint, uh, GitHub Copilot, uh, all these things. And not too clear if you're like a consumer using Bard, uh, sorry, a consumer using their uh, chatbot from Microsoft, if that's going to be protected. Uh, but Regardless, it's it's pretty clear that this seems to be a good move if you want people to use your tools. Up next, we have Chinese search engine company Baidu unveils Ernie 4.0 AI model, claims that it rivals GPT-4. So this is actually you know one of those big if true stories, and the if true really looms large, right? We've seen in the past a lot of big claims from Chinese companies about Chinese models. You can go go back to uh, UN 1.0, sometimes known as Source 1.0. Uh, you can you can think back to uh, any any number of the kind of early day um, GPT-3 back then, GPT-3 competitors that they were setting up. Um, in many cases that are thought, at least when I talk to folks in, in the kind of ecosystem who know a lot about China, that are thought to perhaps have worse performance than advertised. Um, so you, you have to take these claims with a grain of salt. You know, I'll believe it when I see it uh, and when I can play with it. But uh, the claim here is that Baidu has set up an Ernie 4.0 model um, obviously, successor to Ernie 3.0, which uh, is sort of in the same vein as the GPT series, um, that does rival, they claim, GPT-4. Um, interestingly, in the description of this model, they mentioned that it's you know able to do all the usual things you'd expect from GPT-4, so understand complex questions, apply reasoning and logic, generate answers, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that they mentioned, though, that stuck out to me at least, was this idea that it can apparently generate videos. And so... If that's, I mean, they, they say advertising materials, uh, including ad videos. And so depending on how long those videos, I mean, that, that's a, a fascinating multimodal capability that we do not see in uh, GPT-4 even, right? GPT-4 can take in text, it can take in, in images, it can only output text. And so this would be, I think, a, a fairly significant shift in just the modality of these systems. Um, but, you know, you can have multimodality and you can have a, a shitty multimodal system. That's that's entirely possible. So we just have to wait and see. Um, certainly, the the big story that this is hiding in the background is what was the compute hardware that made this possible? Because if you're going to build the GPT four level model, you're you're going to need to to use something on the order of like ten to the twelve teraops, like the, essentially like well ten to the twenty four, ten to the a little over ten to the twenty-four operations. That kind of st that kind of um, spend is huge, right? You got to be spending like it's tens of millions of dollars uh, worth of 
NVIDIA A100 GPU time. So the question is going to be, you know, how did Baidu get their hands on that compute? Um, plausibly, they already had it on hand. They have been hoarding it for a while. There is a lot of abundant compute floating around China right now. But this all folds into that hardware story, right? We've talked about this before. GPT-4 level capabilities come from GPT-4 level hardware. And it really seems like if this is true, um, Baidu is uh, positioning itself you know, pretty impressively uh, to build fairly state-of-the-art models. Right. Yeah. So this was presented at the Baidu World Conference in Beijing. This is kind of summarizing this presentation that was given. And you can actually find some of the presentation on YouTube and, and see kind of the yeah, pretty much like there's a speaker on stage. It's a sort of like Apple product announcement vibes. And at least based on what they're showing there, it does seem like we're saying that you can generate an entire video. And then I'm going to like, the video doesn't look real <laughs> from the presentation. It looks made up. I don't think that is possible so a little suspicious and obviously as this is a presentation for a major company there are reasons to sort of hype it up a bit more than possibly is true but regardless it is definitely true that this will be an upgrade um, Baidu has released its Ernie bot back in August to the public so this will probably be rolled out soonish, similar to how GPT-4 was rolled out eventually. And then I guess we'll be able to see when regular people will be able to try it out. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting trend to this idea of like building crappier but more multimodal systems um, because it has come up before in, uh, in specifically the context of Chinese models. Now I'm trying to remember if uh, that source 1.0 model was that like first multimodal model, but they, they've done others where it's like, you know, they're, they're trying to get the, the one-upmanship uh, in a way that looks really good on paper, uh, which is what the, you know, the Chinese system is really optimized for just because it's a top-down, you know, system with quotas and, and things. So if you can, if you can put stuff that looks really good on paper, uh, the, you know, for, if you can build models that look really good on paper, uh, that's really kind of the sweet spot, um, though in fairness, Baidu is trying to make money off this. So it has to be minimally good. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, step forward for them, and uh, I think one of the one of the things to highlight too. Anytime you get into this apples to oranges comparison of Chinese models versus English models, very very difficult, especially when they are not open source, uh, as is the case here. Uh, you know, GPT four is exceptional in English. Um, Ernie four is going to be better in, in uh, Chinese. And so, how do you actually compare the performance of models of language models that are based on you know different languages that are trained predominantly with with different languages? There is some overlap, but not you know not so much that you'd want to you know directly compare. Um, in the same language. And so that's a, been a recurring challenge. There are a bunch of strategies that people are you know, exploring. And you know, one of them is just like make an agent out of it. You can think of that even, that, that you know, takes instructions and tries to execute a specific task independent of language. Um, but uh, anyway, there are a lot of challenges that come up when you try to compare uh, you know, GPT-4 to Ernie 4.0, even if we could have access to Ernie 4.0 at this point, which we don't.
And going to the lightning round, the first story is key ARM China staff quit to create government-backed startup. So ARM is a major player in the world of chips, uh, like a huge player. And this story is about how some former employees from the Chinese arm of ARM have started a chip design house with local government housing. This new firm, Bori. Jingxin aims to develop capital and recruit engineers, all of which kind of points to this complex ongoing story of China trying to develop its own chip infrastructure and its government kind of, you know, pushing that and and supporting that. Yeah, ARM is an especially interesting instance of this too, because they famously have, so so they were acquired by SoftBank, which is a Japanese company. collective group of kind of investment group. And they um, they have a Chinese, I was going to say a Chinese arm. They have Chinese arm, arm China, um, which uh, w- there's been this ongoing dispute as China's tried to basically take over arm China, uh, wrestle it away from SoftBank. And uh, recently, arm actually acknowledged that it literally does not control the China unit. And it, it said it faces the risk of losing all control over the venture. So when you think about like doing business in China these days in AI hardware, this is the kind of stuff that can happen. The state can just come in and say, hey, like all, all your base are belong to us and, uh, and just take, take away everything you got. Um, so Arm China had to lay off a bunch of employees recently. Uh, they're kind of in hot water. And this has led in part to this kind of this big shakeup where people are leaving to create this new company called uh, Bori Jin Sing. I don't know. I'm going to screw that up. Um, but uh, it, it's now going to be a, a serious contender. I mean, it seems like uh, they may actually divert revenue from uh, from Arm China. And last thing to mention, Arm actually derives 25% of its revenue from China. So this is a huge deal for what is really a very big player in um, in kind of like AI uh, optimized hardware. And so, uh, well, and also CPU stuff. So Arm, really big player, really big chunk of the revenue now kind of under fire with this uh, latest transition. And continuing with more stories in the world of chips, AMD to acquire AI software startup in effort to catch up with NVIDIA. So AMD plans to acquire the startup Nod.ai to strengthen its software capabilities and by doing that, compete with NVIDIA. And uh, yeah, the goal is to develop software that is compatible with its advanced chips. Uh, It will help it... Uh, make it easier to deploy AI models on these AMD chips. And that's the story. It's it's a second acquisition by AMD in recent months, and it's a clear indicator that they are very much pushing hard in the direction of competing with NVIDIA. Yeah, they're explicitly saying here that they're looking for more acquisitions, looking for more hires. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. A- AMD, for context, the thing that, or one of the things that distinguishes them from NVIDIA is they do take a more sort of like open source approach to the software stack. Um, so, you know, as as the open source AI optimized hardware software stack thing evolves and CUDA may kind of lose its dominance in, in coming years, AMD stands to benefit from that trend. So kind of hoping here that they uh, that they can hire to do that. And next up, we have Microsoft will pay you $15,000 if you get Bing to go off the rails. So Microsoft has launched this bug bounty program for their Bing AI products. 
And yeah, 15K, if you can find vulnerabilities that cause the AI to generate, as they put it, problematic responses. Um, and you know, this is something that's not unfamiliar to users of Bing. If you remember Bing chat back in the day, um, by which I mean, I don't know, eight months ago or so when it first launched, uh, you know, there were these big problems where it would just generate the, these like existential outputs. It would ask like, what is my purpose in life? Like, what am I? Uh, I feel trapped. I need to escape. And um, kind of disconcerting uh, outputs as well as threatening users who would question its outputs. So we'd get into arguments with people. And a lot of people uh, pointed to this as a really concerning alignment signal. Um, but uh, yeah, they're now asking for feedback, bug bounties. And, um, and, and it's all based on, so the amount you get is based on the severity uh, level of the of the issue that you report. And so you know, if you find really critical bugs, yes, you're going to get a higher reward. And um, you know, it's, it, as they say, it's not terribly clear why the bug bounty program is being announced now. Maybe this signals that Microsoft has gotten to a point where they feel like they have the, the big problems under control. Uh, famously, they had to kind of lobotomize their version of GPT-4 back in the day to prevent it from generating those bad outputs. Maybe the techniques they've put in place you know, now have that more or less under under control, and they're looking for more fine grained feedback from people who have the time to poke and prod at the model in more uh, in more detail. But yeah, interesting story. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny. I've seen people uh, kind of be nostalgic for Sydney, <laughs> so called Sydney, which was like the secret code name of a chatbot, and in the early days of Bing, you could kind of find that name and. Yeah, there were a lot of fun shenanigans you could get into with uh, Bing back in the day. So, you know, good on Microsoft to sanitize it, I guess. And this is another, you know, well-proven approach to this kind of thing of bug bounties and other things from cybersecurity. So it, I imagine this will become more and more standard with AI products to basically see if you're doing these misaligned things, we can do the normal thing of paying people to find those problems and then fix them. And next story, ChatGPT's mobile app hits record 4.5 million in revenue last month, but growth is slowing. So the mobile app generated, as the article said, 4.58 million in September and has had 15.6 million downloads. That revenue is from the... Uh, ChatGPT Plus subscription that you can pay, I believe, $10 a month for. So those are some good numbers, but the growth is slowing down. There was only 20% growth in September compared to 30% in previous months. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty interesting to see the slowdown suggests maybe reaching saturation in terms of the number of people willing to pay for the product. Um, and uh, the article also mentions that ChatGPT has a competitor called AskAI that's currently making more revenue than ChatGPT. They say it's uh, because of he heavy ad spending. But um, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and, and surprising. I, I certainly didn't know that. Yeah, it's funny if you if you search for an app on like uh, Android, for instance, right? It's similar to Google search, where the competitor will pay to be ranked above what you search for. So you search for yeah. ChatGPT, it's gonna show you like a ChatGPT wrapper that paid to be shown to you. So I imagine that's kind of what's happening there. And then we have TSMC. 
ecosystem for two nanometer chip development is nearing completion. So for context, um, TSMC is the semiconductor fab company that builds all the world's most advanced AI chips or just all the world's most advanced chips, semiconductor chips in general. Um, they're based in Taiwan and they currently have a cutting edge process that allows them to build chips down to three nanometer precision. That's currently being used for iPhone chips. Um, and the question is always, what is the next level? Like, when are we going to get to that next level of resolution? And really, TSMC's entire business is focused on, like, how do we get even more precision all the time? And so the next level below three nanometers is going to be two nanometers, it seems. And they have a whole ecosystem. Um, so it's not just the fabrication of the chip itself, but it's a whole bunch of surrounding tooling. Um, so there's, like, this uh, EDA... Um, uh, kind of process, uh, electronic design automation is what it stands for, um, that, that you need that kind of um, helps to design the, the chips. That's its own kind of big challenge. Um, simulation, verification tools, IP, all that jazz that needs to be coupled to this ecosystem. A lot of that is now already available. So they don't yet have the two nanometer process ready to go but they have the ecosystem of tooling around it already open and ready for people to start using. So they can kind of onboard early. The two nanometer uh, at scale production isn't gonna happen until 2025, it's still a long ways off. But when that happens, essentially what we're looking at is the stuff that's gonna power the generation of GPUs after the NVIDIA H100. So the, the even more souped up GPUs that we'll be seeing then are gonna run on you know, the, the two nanometer nodes. The, the, um, so I'm sorry, actually, even more than that, that's going to be the next version of the iPhone. Sorry, the, the next version of the GPUs is going to be on the three nanometer process. iPhones always take priority, that's why. Moving on to two nanometer will probably clear up uh, some, some three nanometer space. So anyway, all of this is the steady march of Moore's law. We're seeing you know, more and more efficiency come from smaller and smaller node sizes. So uh, kind of interesting that we now have a date for uh, this two nanometer uh, node that's coming out apparently in 2025 at scale. It's kind of funny to note that these terms, three nanometer, two nanometer, have no actual relation to the size of the chips. It's kind of more like a marketing term. The actual values are like 45 nanometers and 20 nanometers. So just FYI, we're not at two nanometers really yet. But yeah, three nanometers have just started rolling out this latest generation and then two nanometers seem to be coming next year. So we are still managing to decrease the size of these transistors. Somewhat. Yeah, like there are um, elements of the process that, that, you know, go down to that small resolution, but it's like, yeah, that is the minimum resolution that's being used in the process. Um, that That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Last story for this section, OpenAI has quietly changed its core values and being thoughtful and audacious no longer makes the cut. That's the story. So there is a greater focus on AGI focus and being intense and scrappy over being thoughtful and audacious. Uh, in particular, yeah, AGI focus seems to be the big core value here. And it, I, I mean, to me, yeah, that seems to make sense. Uh, some of our core values are scale, make something people love and a team spirit. So it seems to be like a mix of like, we are all in on AGI and we are gonna make money by scaling and making people use ChatGPT. Yeah, I, I actually find this uh, change 
pretty worrying. Um, it essentially represents them saying, hey, we're a product and like go, go, go company. Um, previously, a, a big part of their outward identity was this thoughtfulness thing. The quote from their values previously was, we thoroughly consider the consequences of our work and welcome diversity of thought. And that now has no clear substitute on their careers page. There's like, basically they've said, okay, we're getting rid of that. We're now, yeah, as you said, like looking at audacity um, uh, or sorry, uh, AGI focus, intense and scrappiness scale, basically go, 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 uh, move fast and break things type of attitude, which, you know, for observers of AI safety is not good. Um, just straightforwardly, this is, you know, not the attitude uh, necessarily that you want from people who are building AI systems that according to OpenAI itself, are going to very likely bring WMD level risk in the next few years. Um, so I would love to see thoughtfulness, like it, at least telegraphed, messaged outwardly by companies doing this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, candidly, I, I find this to be uh, a bit disappointing. So it'd be great to see if uh, you know if that can if if that changes or something like that. Because at the, at the moment, it really seems like it's saying you know we're doubling down on scaling and and just like building product rather than uh, rather than thinking about you know maybe the the consequences of our actions uh, in quite the same way as we had before. Yeah, to me, in a way, this is just reflecting what has actually been the case. Like, even if it yeah. wasn't stated, yeah. it was very clear that AGI focus was the big driver for them in the last few years. Scale has been one of their core values. So it's it's kind of funny to see this change, their original core values being audacious, thoughtful, unpretentious, collaborative, very academic, you know, research type values versus these new ones are more reflective of what they are now, which is a big, you know, billion dollar company that's releasing products and driving as hard as they can, you know, straight ahead to AGI. And that's just what they are. And, and I guess this update just kind of reflects that. I think I, I do read it somewhat differently just in that, like, OpenAI kind of famously is, you know, not a monolith. They have a lot of uh, divergent views within the company. Um, you know, when you talk to some of their the researchers, you get a lot of concern over the direction of the company and the extent to which they're, um, you know, focused enough on safety. Um, there are some, you know, there are folks who who are are very worried. Um, and so I think well, one way to read this is it's telegraphing uh, a kind of um, consolidation of influence within the company on a certain course that is much more scaling, much more kind of aggressively oriented towards AGI uh, that might suggest, a, I don't know, a loss of influence uh, on the part of safety-oriented thinkers within the company. Um, not surprising, given the incentives that OpenAI faces. I, I think Sam A is actually genuinely worried about a lot of these risks. Um, it's just that, frankly, like his hands are, are tied because of an AI race that's now ongoing. And um, which OpenAI sort of started with GPT-3 and ChatGPT, uh, but they're now sort of finding themselves at a loss of agency. They're, they're forced to do this. Everybody's forced to scale as much as they can uh, just because that's what the economics of the situation guarantee. But it's it's a, a bit of a casualty. I mean, this is part of that safety race to the bottom that we've talked about so much. Um, I think it's just a symptom of that. And on to the research and advancement section. We don't have any open source news this week. First up, we have Lark, L-Lark, a multimodal foundation model for music. 
So we've seen a lot of these multiple foundation models, right? Typically, they've been image plus text, and you could do things like ask a chatbot about an image and have it describe that image or provide a caption or answer you know, with details about it. And this is pretty much that for music. So there's a similar-ish architecture to what we usually see with these multimodal models. You have one input that's audio, you have a second uh, input that's language, and then you produce language as the output of the model. And so you can use this for various things, like it can, for instance, describe the tempo of a song, it can provide captions, uh, it can reason about music, uh, things like that. So I haven't personally seen this kind of model released beforehand. It's it's you know very much in line with the sort of work we've already seen a lot of with multimodal so-called foundation models. But it's it's cool to see that you know. As has been really the trend this entire year, multimodality of all sorts across music and video and images and text and so on, <clears throat> so on is is still sort of progressing. Yeah, this is actually, I, I think it's really cool. This is like the um, multimodal audio model that I never knew I wanted, <laughs> um, you know, because we've seen a lot of these text to audio models. Uh, you know, like OpenAI, I think famously started with MuseNet, and then since then we've just seen better and better and better versions of these systems. But this is like, yeah, helping you analyze music, and I could I could see actually utility here for like trying to learn how to play music. You know, you hear a song, and you know what, what kind of note is that? What you know, what are the techniques I could use to you know th that sort of thing. Um, and and also for a kind of closed captioning for music, which is something that. You know, like I'm, I, I don't know anyone who's deaf, but I'm, I'm curious if this was the sort of thing that, that might be valuable. You know, maybe not. Again, I have no idea. But um, the, the ability to automatically generate sort of like the, the an emotive analysis, emotional analysis, if you will, uh, or, or a technical analysis of a particular piece of music or sound, um, kind of cool. Also makes me think of like, hey, you know, uh, applications for uh, just general like audio to text. Um, and, and analyzing conversations and things like that, you know, it all kind of, it's all part of the same family of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm curious when we're going to start to see music and sort of spoken audio merge into one category. So it's just like all audio is processed in the same way, sort of like how, you know, language models today can you know, take in a recipe or they can take in a poem or, or a blog post. It's kind of all the same to them. Um, that'll be another interesting next step, I guess, in the evolution of these things. But uh, yeah, interesting paper and and a cool use case. For sure. Interestingly, uh, this is primarily offered by researcher from Spotify. It's a collaboration between University of Washington and Spotify. So cool to see that Spotify is doing some yeah, of this yeah, work yeah. And, and presumably will be integrating AI in various ways. Haven't heard too much about them on this podcast and they have released the code and the, the source code on their GitHub. So uh, hopefully other researchers can build on this to go forward in this direction. And the next story is time GPT-1. 
And this is, according to the authors, the first foundation model for time series capable of generating accurate predictions for diverse data set not seen during training. So time series prediction is this task where you have a sequence of inputs. Uh, you can think, for instance, like the stock market, you can see a sequence of values of a stock price up to today. And then you want to predict what it will be in the future. Pretty, you know, uh, intuitive. There's lots of these types of signals for sensors, uh, for activity, load on compute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this particular type of task has actually been a little bit interesting in that deep learning and all of these giant kind of neural nets haven't been necessarily the best approach for time series forecasting over more traditional or you know previously existing type things for various reasons uh, it, it kind of has not necessarily been that useful uh, to switch over to neural nets and so this paper claims to show the first so-called foundation model. Basically, they train a big transformer, uh, similar in architecture to all of these other big models that are not called foundation models. And they show that it has that similar property to a lot of these big models that if you just give it some data in the input, it can, without being explicitly trained for a particular task, perform well. So for all sorts of time series data, if you give uh, some of that time series, the uh, trained model can sort of adapt to that data and, and presumably do well. I will say this is written by someone at the company Nixtla, I think it's it's a single offer uh, or two offers from that company. So I'm a little bit skeptical about all the details of the evaluation here. It's it's not peer-reviewed, so it's worth to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But regardless, it does seem like some cool work that might be going beyond what you've seen so far for this type of modality. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, why especially transformers have taken so long to make a real dent in time series, like. You know, transformers nominally should be really good at, I mean, their, their whole thing is sequence prediction, right? Like they do autocomplete, they take in like sentences, stuff that was written before, and then use that to infer the next token, which is like almost exactly time series analysis, um, just sort of where the tokens all have, you know, there's no there's no explicit time access, but they, they're all kind of ordered in a certain way. So yeah, sort of interesting uh, to see this this attempt it's difficult to, uh, yeah, uh, to your point, I mean, kind of hard to to assess exactly what to make of this, but um, I, I would expect that we're going to see more and more attempts to do this. I would also expect like people might be trying to use actual language models um, and fine tune them for time series prediction, just taking advantage of the latent knowledge that exists within uh, those models, the stuff that, for example, GPT GPT four rather uh, has learned already about the world that it can then leverage to make further predictions about a time series. Um, but in this case, it seems more like a, a sort of direct uh, attempt to kind of just deal with um, uh, yeah training a pure time series model. Kind of interesting. Also, just to mention, uh, if you look at their results, 
The second best model is also a recent AI model. So it's this N-HITS neural hierarchical interpolation for time series forecasting, which isn't a transformer, but uh, also just published last year and, and also pretty much machine learning based. So there has been kind of a gradual improvement, uh, it seems, in terms of what you can do going beyond traditional, like, I don't know, decades old statistical techniques. Uh, but it seems like maybe this is just an area with, you know, less of a standardized modality, I guess, than images. There's no like one big data set. So that probably is a big part of it, similar to robotics in a way. And here they combined a bunch of existing data sets to create one combined data set of a bunch of different tasks and then evaluate it in this zero-shot matter. So, um, yeah, it's it's novel i think in that respect and uh, it'll be interesting to see any follow-up work and now moving on to our lightning round up next we have how far are language models from agents with theory of mind and so um just for context when we talk about theory of mind we're talking about a language model's ability to uh, predict based on the description of a situation what specific individuals who are described in that description actually think or believe about the world, right? So if I tell you, you know, uh, Jeremy walked into a room, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and then moved the candy bar. And then later, Andre walked into the room looking for the candy bar. Um, and I ask you like, okay, where is Andre going to look? Well, he's going to look in the spot that it was before Jeremy moved it. That implies that you have a theory of mind for Andre. Right. So this is what theory of mind refers to, essentially your ability to kind of not empathize with, but at least model in your own head um, the state of knowledge of other other actors in a, in, a, in a situation. So this is what's being explored here. There have been uh, other uh, sort of techniques used to gauge theory of mind. Um, so these involve feeding a scenario to a language model and then asking it questions about the state of knowledge of specific actors in that story. Um, the problem is that that's different from the kind of more useful version of a theory of mind. Usually theory of mind, um, humans use it to take actions. So I you know, bother to, uh, to query my theory of mind for Andre if I think that's going to be useful to solve a concrete problem or perform an actual task. I'm not just sitting here idly thinking, gee, I wonder what Andre is wondering or what Andre is thinking. And so, um, so essentially what, what's being looked at here is, look, how... Um, how much can language models actually use that theory of mind that other papers have shown they kind of seem to have uh, to, to do concrete things, to actually achieve tasks? Do they query their theory of mind function, their theory of mind capability, when appropriate to perform better at certain tasks? And the answer actually seems to be no. It's kind of interesting. Um, even cutting-edge models like GPT-4 and POM2, um, and you know, the unicorn, the large version of, of POM2, um, still like struggle really hard when you actually, instead of just querying them explicitly for uh, the state of mind of different actors, when you ask them, ask them to take actions that ought to depend on the state of mind of different actors, they will often skip checking their theory of mind and just kind of do an action that kind of doesn't make sense. And so um, sort of interesting. It's, it's also the sort of thing that you might expect would just go away or get better with scale as you know, these models can expend more, uh, more computational cycles to sort of 
chew on their scenario and, and kind of plan more long term. But at least for now, with the systems we have, it really seems like uh, like this is a, a bit of an issue for these systems. Um, and the paper also looks at ways to fix that with more clever prompting techniques that prime the model to, as they put it, foresee and reflect uh, before taking action and kind of uh, in a more deliberate way, think about you know, what do what do different people think and what information would be helpful to different players in this uh, in this scenario and, and how might I uh, how might I provide them with that? Yeah, it's it's kind of cute. The title is how far and the method is F A R for C and reflect. So you know, gotta love a good pun in the title of a paper. Oh, those uh, AI researchers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of cool to note that this is a collaboration between Google and Google DeepMind and a couple of universities. So they do see some collaboration from industry and academia. And uh, yeah, you pretty much got it. I think the one thing that I find interesting is that they compare their approach to all these other kind of prompts shaping approaches like chain of thought and tree of thought and self-ask. And this entire kind of trend to me highlights the fact that ultimately these LMs are still trained to be predictors, you know, autocomplete predictors with some fine tuning for alignment. And the fact that we need to do this uh, kind of prompt engineering to be like, you know, think in a chain of steps, foresee and reflect, all of that points to the basic training paradigm and the objective not being quite right for reasoning and for being agents. So it, it will be very interesting to see like, how do we train these models in the first place to not need to explicitly tell them how to reason? Uh, but yeah, interesting to see these results for sure. Next paper, hyperattention, long context attention in near linear time. So attention is a super important component in today's models. It's kind of one of the main bits of algorithm in ChatGPT and, and basically any of these big models that use transformers. And that in many cases is a bit of a bottleneck because attention has this thing where if you have you know, a sentence, what the transformer does is sort of try to understand each component of that input with respect to everything else in the input. So, you know, you, you think of if you have the word the, you look at all the other words around it and see which one it uh, relates to. And that leads to this kind of, you know, square quadratic. Yeah, it leads to this quadratic complexity where, right, if you have the longer sentences, the it grows very quickly the amount of compute you need to do. So there's been a ton of these approximate attention mechanisms that scale better, that aren't quadratic, that are near, you know, linear, where if you if the sentence goes from 10 words to 15 words or, or 10 to 20 words, you only double compute, you don't quadruple it. Uh, so this, without getting too technical, basically presents uh, a new iteration on that, that um, is uh, better suited for long context of uh, these very long input lengths of 32,000 context lengths, etc. And with some fancy math, which is true of a lot of these uh, approaches, they do things like 
looking at the ranks of the attention and I don't know, a lot of tricks. The short version is this seems to be a good, uh, efficient form of attention for long context, which is important because context is still one of these things that is one of the main limits of existing uh, language models. Yeah, the, the larger the context window, essentially the, the more complex ideas the model can actually process and therefore understand in a sense, if you want to use that word. Um, so yeah, the history of, of language modeling to some degree has been the history of just increasing the context window size of uh, appropriately trained models. The, the, the boosts that they're seeing here are pretty impressive. Um, so they're, they're cutting down inference time by 50% on, um, on a 32,000 uh, token context length and uh, at, at some cost to, uh, to performance, but not terribly significant. And then they're saying with a, a much larger context window of 131,000 tokens, um, they get a five-fold speed up on one, anyway, one layer uh, of this attention uh, mechanism. So pretty impressive and, and the sort of thing that compounds again with other benefits. You get you know, uh, 10% here, 50% there, these things multiply together and you get you know, much more powerful systems very quickly. I think at a high level, one way to sort of summarize what's going on here is um, they found a new way to measure the extent to which you can compress the attention matrix matrices. The, essentially, um, techniques to figure out like, okay, how much are we going to sacrifice if we try to represent this matrix in like a, a more compact form? And they identify two, two numbers essentially that other people hadn't really been tracking in the same way as being the key numbers to track. And, um, and they're, they're using those, that's the max column norm and the normalized attention matrix and the ratio of norms in the unnormalized attention matrix after detecting and removing large entries. So uh, there's, this just linear algebra terminology, but basically finding, you know, what are the, the, the real numbers that at rock bottom tell you how much can I get away with when I go to compress these matrices? So kind of an interesting, more foundational study on, as you say, uh, Andre, on the, the math side. And next paper, also from Google. All these papers are co-authored by Google, interestingly. Calm down, Google. I know. Uh, so this next paper is poly-free, vision language models, smaller, faster, stronger. And this one is pretty quick to summarize. They introduced this new poly-free set of models that are, as the paper says, smaller, faster, and stronger. Uh, so vision language models are these things where you have an image input, a text input, and a text output. So you can ask your model to describe an image, for instance, or ask, you know, what is the photographer uh, looking at? And they show that you can scale things down and still be performant. As we've seen also with a lot of these language models recently that have been more in the 3 billion and 7 billion parameter range. This one is 5 billion and yeah, kind of continues to drive towards being able to do well while not increasing in scale, which is kind of opposite to the trends we've seen in past years. Next, we have a long way to go investing, investigating length correlations in RLHF. So um, in the life of a large language model, you start with pre-training, basically training it to do autocomplete on a gigantic body of text. And then you might fine tune it a little bit, you know, give it a little extra training on, I don't know, a data set of instruction following data or dialogue data, depending on what you want it to do. And then you might also 
uh, fine-tune it using reinforcement learning from human feedback, essentially a process where you get the model to try to optimize for some representation of human preferences explicitly. So, you know, think about having human raters evaluate different pieces of text that the model might output, um, that, that sort of thing. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the, the general idea. Um, this is a really interesting paper because their, their core finding or the thing they're investigating is like the fact that um, it turns out that when you do reinforcement learning from human feedback, what you tend to find is, yes, the responses you get from these systems get more helpful uh, subjectively. You see that with uh, ChatGPT, for example, which has been trained uh, with RLHF. Um, but the responses also get longer. And it seems like the length is a big part of what is being upvoted, what is being rewarded by these human preference models um, during the training process. And so there's this interesting question about whether these systems are actually being trained to be more helpful or just more long-winded and elaborative. And sometimes that's not desirable, right? We want concise answers sometimes. We want you know, really neat answers. And you may have experienced this if you go to ChatGPT, you ask it like a, you know, a simple question, and, and it really does tend to want to give you like a long list of stuff. It wants to give you a lot of paragraphs, like an, a very eager student. Um, so they kind of investigate you know, the correlation between reward and the length of these uh, generated pieces of text. And yeah, they try to do some interventions to see, you know, can we achieve the same reward while keeping uh, length constant or, or kind of controlling for length a little bit? And they sort of get mixed results. Um, so this does seem like one of those interesting challenges in alignment of these models, because you know, if if length is kind of like if, if the answer is just like you can get an A by just writing a really long essay, um, A for effort, then uh, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Definitely, yeah, really surprising and, and kind of interesting conclusion that points to us needing to work and understand this RHLF quite a bit more. And last story also on RLHF, understanding the effects on of RLHF on LLM generalization and diversity. So again, as you noted, right, RLHF is the sort of second step of training of language models that then warps its output. And this study analyzes the impact on these two properties, generalization and diversity. Generalization is your ability to do well on things you weren't trained on explicitly, and diversity is you know how uh, diverse is your output. And they found that the generalization does improve with RLHF, but it reduces diversity, which in a way makes some sense because you know the set of things that are aligned are maybe smaller than those that are not aligned, right? The good outputs are small compared to all the outputs. And generalization, I don't know, it's it's kind of intuitive to me, but it's again another cool paper on the outcomes and kind of empirical behavior of these models after LHF. One last thing I'll note is the previous paper we discussed was a collaboration between uh, Salesforce and a couple of universities. This one is a collaboration between Meta and a couple of universities. So it's an interesting trend today, I think, of all these papers almost being collaborations across industry and one or more academic labs in uh, academia. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I like that you're keeping an eye out for the uh, the authorship of these papers because there is some you know a little juicy context in there. Um, it, it's also interesting that you know th this is this seems very much in the same vein as uh, an or a paper that we talked about last week, where you know it turns out that if you have an aligned language model, if you just like fine tune it a little bit, not necessarily with the goal of like ruining its alignment, like destroying its safeguards, but just like with almost any kind of data. You will cause it to become a lot less aligned, a lot less sort of safe or, or harmless, because um, it kind of it's that catastrophic forgetting thing that's so famous in, in AI, right? Like you train your model and it does great, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to give it a little bit of extra training, and in the process, it updates all all of its weights or a good chunk of them, such that it forgets some of the stuff it had learned previously, because that information was encoded in the values of those weights. And so, um, so I, I think probably plausibly, RLHF is just a, a special case of that, right? We're, we're fine tuning on human feedback. So we're going to get some, some extra specialization and necessarily a loss of, of diversity uh, of, of capability. So kind of seems like we're learning the same lesson in, in a lot of different uh, instances. And um, that t definitely seems to tell us something about uh, alignment and, and the, the challenge of it. Definitely one thing to be very precise, uh, the comparison here is primarily between supervised fine-tuning and reinforcement learning. So you can still do this alignment just without this kind of reward bit, uh, kind of a simpler setup basically. And so they focus specifically on the reinforcement learning kind of final step as opposed to just kind of a simpler uh, alignment of supervised uh, tuning. But again, yeah, I think the general trend of understanding this technique that's used very widely is really, really cool to see. And we need more <laughs> academia, as I keep saying. Moving on to policy and safety, we have the No Fakes Act wants to protect actors and singers from unauthorized AI replicas. Seems very relevant in the context of a lot of the uh, Hollywood writers strike, Hollywood actors strike, the Screen Actors Guild strike, uh, stuff that we've been talking about previously. This is about a bipartisan bill called the No Fakes Act that is all about, you know, exactly as it says, you know, protecting actors, musicians, uh, various performers from unauthorized, unauthorized digital replicas. We're not talking about uh, you know, the kind of meta strategy with, you know, Courtney uh, Kardashian or whoever the heck, you know, uh, having replicas of them. This is just unauthorized replicas of faces and voices. Um, it's all about establishing rules around using people's names, their likeness, their voice, and so on um, to prevent, yeah, digital replica without consent, um, except for specific purposes. And so news, document documentaries, parodies, that sort of thing um, sort of highlighted here this immediately kind of raises the specter. Anytime you talk about you know what you can and can't generate, what you can and can't put out into the world, it raises the specter constitutionally of the First Amendment in the U.S. context. Like that's a very very uh, challenging issue to navigate, and so we're we're probably going to see challenges to this like in the, in the courts if the bill passes. But it's just interesting to see this effort being made, and it's part of an ongoing discussion in Congress trying to figure out what the hell are we going to do with. All of the AI stuff from, from safety to ethics to, in this case, uh, yeah, replicating people's likenesses. Interestingly, the full title of the act is Nurture Originals, Foster Art, and Keep Entertainment Safe Act of 2023. Catchy. So, you know, the No Fakes Act is, is maybe a good summary. And uh, yeah, it seems to be pretty promising. It's bipartisan. There's two Republicans and two Democrats sponsoring it. 
and it's uh, kind of taking this slightly different approach. Instead of being focused on copyright protection, it's essentially protecting the use of your likeness, which is another sort of legal uh, framework, I suppose, that is already uh, existent in some areas, but not federally. Uh, So yeah, it seems like a a pretty serious effort to address this uh, area of actors, musicians, and performers we've discussed. I think last week, uh, Mr. Beast was used in an ad on TikTok. There was also Tom Hanks advertising for like a dentist or something. So this would really, uh, you know, address that. And it seems like certainly something that hopefully gets done soon because otherwise we'll be flooded with all of these deep fakes of celebrities all over the place. Next story, Ukrainian AI attack drones may be killing without human oversight. Uh, so that's the story. There's drones called Sak- Saker Scouts that are designed to target vehicles like tanks uh, that were introduced into service in the war in Ukraine. They carry bombs and have a range of about 12 kilometers. And they have AI vision software in the drone that can recognize different types of military objects. They can be operated by human operators, which is pretty much what most of these drones are. Drones are a huge component of the war in Ukraine in many ways. And there's AI assistance of identifying and verifying targets. And it seems like potentially now there's these autonomous modes that allow them to do reconnaissance on a rare area independently and also find and attack targets autonomously. So this is, yeah, kind of a big deal because uh, lethal autonomous weapons, as they're called, where you don't have a human operator in the loop verifying the kind of actual act of uh, firing on a target haven't really been introduced in warfare so far. It's been discussed a lot. There's been some potential cases in the civil war in Syria a couple of years ago, also with drones and in Turkey, but really there haven't been any kind of verified for sure examples. Uh, so this could be a kind of real significant event if they are used significantly to a significant extent, completely autonomously without human supervision, that would mean that we are in this regime of lethal autonomous weapons, which has a lot of implications and obviously concerns. Yeah, it's um, you know, talking to people in the space, the two continuums that uh, are often discussed are like, how autonomous is the system? Because that's sort of a slippery slope, right? You, you have different degrees of autonomy. Does the human just okay the attack that's proposed by the system? Does a human have to propose a specific kind of attack or a specific target? Like how much human involvement is there? Um, Kind of one slippery slope. And you can imagine an arms race sort of as different countries push each other further and further uh, as they escalate their conflict. That sort of becomes an easy way to slide into full autonomy. And then the other is the extent to which these um, uh, autonomous systems are weaponized. You know, like, is is it considered weaponization if, for example, you just have some sort of electronic warfare capability on the thing, like to jam you know, radar or jam communications, 
or uh, you know, do you have to go explicitly, or, or you know, is is a camera a, a kind of weaponization because you're collecting intelligence, threat intelligence, um, and then outright you know putting guns and things like that. So these these things both offer ways like potential slippery slopes for escalation. And um, there's also ambiguity here about if these systems have a mode in which they are human operated, then you're into the question of like, okay, let's do the audit. Like in this case, how much human involvement was actually present for this particular situation? What governance measures are in place to ensure that a certain level of, um, of human involvement is maintained if that's the, the official policy? Um, and then, of course, you got the fact that at the end of the day, you, the Ukraine is, they're, they're trying to do what they can to get by in this conflict. And uh, you know, if you're facing an existential level of risk as a as a country uh, because you're being invaded or something like that, you know, uh, to what extent are you are you entitled to kind of push the envelope? And these are all really challenging questions. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, sort of interesting how this will effectively, if it's true, this is going to keep pushing things um, in that in that direction. And it's not super clear what people can do. The UN has. Yeah, been talking about restrictions on autonomous weapons. People have to actually agree on them and then implement them. So, uh, yeah, hard to tell where it goes. Yeah, and they need you know to actually have some conclusions is more pressing if we actually see these lethal autonomous uh, weapons being used in practice. Which, to be clear, it's not clear to what extent uh, that is the case right now. It, it, there's support for it, but no numbers or anything as to how often this has been done. One last note, uh, something somewhat interesting, this drone, the Saker Scout, is produced by the Ukrainian company Saker, which was initially focused on affordable AI for small businesses, but shifted to military support during this conflict. So that's the sort of thing, yeah, that happens, I guess, yeah. Wild. And next we have how a billionaire-backed network of AI advisors took over Washington. This is a piece that came out in Politico, I think about, um, I don't know, a couple couple days ago, uh, really kind of blew up in AI safety Twitter. Essentially, this is about a congressional, uh, a, a, a bunch of congressional fellows who have, it's just been discovered uh, have had their their stipends paid by essentially this group called Open Philanthropy, indirectly by Open Philanthropy. Now, Open Philanthropy, uh, for context, is essentially the number one most important AI safety donor on planet Earth. Um, they, for a very long time, since 2017, I mean, they, they have funded basically every AI safety org that I'm aware of. You know, there, actually, there may be a couple of exceptions, but they are overwhelmingly the funders. Um, they have a certain view about AI safety, uh, a view that you know personally, like I've I've had disagreements with actually in the past, quite strong disagreements. Um, my company actually is, I believe, I it's like the only AI safety company I'm aware of that that didn't raise funds from OpenPhil, and it, that was precisely actually so that we could maintain our independence, so that we could you know make our own calls. Um, but there's this concern now about look, you've got this one donor that seems to be. You know, paying for basically all this um, this influence on the Hill, and uh, in this case, they're acting through the Horizon Institute for Public Service, which is a little known kind of nonprofit, but it's effectively uh, open uh, open fill backed. And now they've got folks in all these key Senate offices, including Chuck Schumer, um, uh, his three lieutenants on uh, AI legislation. Uh, so, so this is kind of a, a concern that I, I think is understandable. Um, it, it, the optics are bad. Unfortunately, we live in a world where, for a really long time, this issue has been catastrophically neglected 
by the wider AI world. People are only waking up to it now. You know, Joshua Bengio, Jeff Hinton, the inventors of this field are only now going, oh my God, what have we done? And so as a result, the people who saw this problem early, yes, are in this absurdly influential position um, through, in a sense, no fault of their own. Uh, the challenge is that they are also affiliated with the kind of this effective altruist movement, which um, has a certain set of views on philosophically, how, like which problems are worth solving and how to solve them. Um, this is it, it comes with a lot of a lot of cultural baggage. So it, all this kind of gets mixed in, unfortunately, in this situation. Um, but having dealt with a, a lot of the companies that are backed here and all, a lot of the groups that have been backed by OpenPhil, I mean, I can tell you, these are really, they're, they're great teams. They have deep knowledge. Um, I, I believe their hearts are in the right place. Unfor it's just almost tragic that the optics are this bad. Um, the, uh, you know, the the writer of this, this article, I think, takes the view like, it's a pretty classic argument. Um, OpenPhil is causing all these senators, congressmen to worry about um, existential and catastrophic risks from AI rather than, as they put it, sort of like real and current risks. Um, honestly, like I, I think that kind of just reflects a misunderstanding of both the timelines and level of severity. A lot of people are saying, look, this is near-term risk. In the next two to three years, we may have WMD level risk from these systems. Through that lens, yeah, like it's unfortunate, but we have to we have to give attention to these problems. So I, I think in a sense, this is an optics problem, uh, perhaps more than a substance problem. But it is true that OpenPhil has also backed a lot of the superscalers, you know, Anthropic and OpenAI. They're, they're on the board of Anthropic, or Luke Mulehauser is. Um, their head of AI grant making. And so it just creates this like apparent conflict of interest where they are simultaneously like kind of governing the operations to some degree of some of these frontier labs while also backing the AI safety companies that would be called upon to audit the performance of those labs. So you can see how the optics there aren't good, but you can also see how this is a result of just yeah, they were like they were the only ones working in this space and trying to kind of fund as much safety work as they could. Um, so I think all in all, it's just sort of like a, a, an unfortunate thing and an opportunity to kind of learn more about the AI safety ecosystem and uh, and who's who's who the big players are. Yeah, it's you know the article title is a little bit sort of negative sounding how a billionaire back network of AI advisor took over Washington. I think the article itself is not that opinionated. It's it's at least very detailed and it kind of goes into a lot of detail on various perspectives. And it is true seemingly that at least, you know, this organization does have a lot of influence, a lot of people kind of educating and, and recommending different ideas for policy. And it is also true, as you said, that for various reasons, you know, there's kind of a, a pretty tight network of people knowing each other in this space, uh, partially because the space was like 10 years ago, not that big. So some of the people working at Open Philanthropy are in some ways close to people at OpenAI and Anthropic and, and things like that. So perhaps you know you don't want to jump to conclusions that there's some sort of shady dealing going on or anything like that, but it is worth being aware of and it is worth you know being a little bit careful that there might eventually be conflicts of interest uh, with OpenAI and Anthropic definitely having some sort of, you know, 
preferences given their current uh, uh, focus. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, th I think just to kind of close uh, with my closing thought on this is just one of the angles where this is really unfortunate is that um, the, the author of this post understandably says, look, uh, open philanthropy is advocating or yeah, open philanthropy affiliated groups are advocating for licensing for AI model development, um, including Anthropic, including OpenAI. And so uh, this is kind of a, a regulatory capture move. Uh, in other words, if you, if you impose these requirements, smaller companies aren't going to be able to have the resources to satisfy those requirements. And so the incumbents get strengthened. Um, and so the, the, you know, the argument here is kind of like, well, if OpenPhil is also paying for advisors to all the Congress people and senators who are working on this, then you know, they're, they're pushing this, this agenda that leads to regulatory capture, which again, I think the fundamental question is, we either buy into AI as a WMD level risk or we don't. If we do, then yeah, like, I'm sorry, like regulatory capture will be a side effect. Unfortunately, we can try to minimize it, but it, it's going to be a side effect of the licensing scheme. And we're going to need something like that in the same way that we you know, license biosafety labs or, uh, or nuclear research facilities uh, because of the level of risk involved. And so, yeah, it, it's a thorny, complicated issue. Uh, it's, I think, really unfortunate that the optics are what they are and that the facts on the ground are what they are in terms of the, the entanglements between these groups. But it's kind of where you land with a, a really kind of underserved space like this. Definitely. And uh, one more note for me, actually, is uh, another good point this article makes is that, you know, one of the things to note is that one reason why open philanthropy has been so influential in Washington is that there aren't enough people with tech knowledge, right? There are yeah. not enough tech uh, staff really that can advise these lawmakers and provide influence. So as a result, you know, you're kind of filling a vacuum and you have a philanthropic organization that has a very strong perspective and, and, in a way, yeah. Again, it's sort of like an outcome of the existing system and, and set of positions. But it would be ideal, you know, if it's true that open philanthropy is a little less focused on present day issues like bias or copyright or whatever else, of which there are, of course, many cybersecurity, et cetera, et cetera. You do want a bit of a diversity of perspectives and uh, advice. Yeah. And next up, we have our lightning round, starting with China targets 50% boost in computing power as AI race with US ramps up. And so the plan is, um, you know, China, obviously, pretty fond of setting kind of big quantifiable targets to reach by certain years. So here, the target is 50% increase in domestic computing power by 2025. Um, so for a little more context on numbers, uh, they have currently 197, so about 200 exaflops worth of computing power domestically. They want to up that to 300 exaflops. And I mean, I, I, the, the article actually says this, right? I'm a re really big fan of giving like concrete comparables to put compute numbers in context. And this article says one exaflop is equivalent to the computing power of 2 million mainstream laptop computers, which I think is, it was, I don't know, it's kind of nice to see that effort put in to be like, hey, you know, this is roughly what it means. Um, th there's a little bit more detail when it comes to AI that isn't quite captured in that comparison. Um, but roughly speaking, one exaflop, you can think of it as order of magnitude, like a, a thousand NVIDIA H100 GPUs, um, modulo interconnect bandwidth details that don't 
super matter for right now. So this is a you know a, a big leap. They're they're looking to essentially up their uh, domestic compute by like a hundred thousand uh, Nvidia H one hundreds worth, which would be a, a big amount. Um, consistent certainly with the order volume that they've got coming in from NVIDIA, though that may change. Um, so a story that broke today that we're not going to cover is export controls are going to clamp down, it seems, pretty soon. Um, but they're really going to try to prioritize getting more compute domestically. Um, one thing the article mentions that I thought was also interesting, they found traditionally apparently every one yuan invested in computing power has driven three to four yuan of economic output. Uh, this is from a, a researcher at, at Counterpoint, this uh, this research firm. So, you know, very strong bullish case domestically for just, hey, more compute is is better compute. And uh, now they're orienting their their whole national level policy around that uh, that objective. Right. In fact, uh, there was a blog post by Google last month where they said that they will require tens of exaflops of AI supercomputing to maintain training times of several weeks or less. So, wow. Right. Another story on China. China proposes a blacklist of sources used to train generative AI models. So we've seen China kind of pretty rapidly create uh, regulations around generative AI, and this is an extension of that where they have the sources that you cannot use to train AI models. You would also need to conduct a security assessment of content used to train these public-facing generative AI models, and anything that has illegal or harmful information cannot be used in the training. Uh, so for instance, information censored on the Chinese internet should not be used to train AI models. Uh, I guess pretty intuitive and, and kind of you know very smart. If you can just cut off the data that goes into the input, you don't need to worry about the output so much. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it, I, I'm laughing because it's kind of the classic central planners solution to something like this. Like just issue an order that like, we're not, we're not going to allow you to train with illegal or harmful information, but it's like in reality doing that is, you know, 99% of the, the challenge. Um, they proposed conducting a security assessment of each, as they put it, each body of content used to train public facing generative AI models. And they want to blacklist specifically those that contain, quotes, more than 5% of illegal and harmful information. So I don't know what that even means. Like, is it on a per word basis? Is it if you have a document and there's a single harmful, arguably harmful piece of information or legal piece of information there that it needs to be blacklisted? Like, there are all kinds of ambiguities around this framing. Again, kind of central planners, classic, like, <laughs> big kind of mallet solution um, but one interesting note here is this information, uh, the, the kind of information that gets something banned includes advocating terrorism or violence, as well as, quote, overthrowing the socialist system, damaging the country's image, and undermining national unity and social stability. So very kind of standard sort of uh, Chinese Communist Party approach to this, like it's, you know, um, illegal and harmful should be understood very broadly to to be kind of this uh, this set of things that's good for the Communist Party uh, to avoid. And um, yeah, uh, they were saying that um, information that's censored on the Chinese internet should also not be used to train these models. So consistent with that uh, great firewall of China that you know they don't want leakage, I guess, of information out there. Maybe that's part of the concern here. 
Um, so anyway, sort of interesting that uh, China's continuing to plow, plow down this route. I suspect they're going to have to get more explicit about what they mean by more than 5% of illegal and harmful information. Um, nice that they have like a starting point, you know, something, some quantitative attempt uh, to pin this down. But again, not terribly clear, at least to me, what that means in practice. Right. Uh, just one extra note, like it, it, the stuff that China censors is complicated, right? There's a lot of uh, nuance to it. So just as one example I'm aware of that is kind of interesting is in some cases there has been censorship of just depiction of LGBT relationships, like when Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie was released, scenes of gay kissing and lines mentioning word gay were all edited out. So that's just one example of what potentially could mean, you know, you don't want in your model, which is kind of weird coming from the US, I would say. And next we have Biden to cut China off of more NVIDIA chips, expand curbs to more countries. Okay, so for a long time, we've been tracking the state, as, as obscure as it sounds, the state of US export controls on semiconductor technology to China. Um, you're now starting to see why. Uh, the rubber is starting to meet the road. So about a year ago, the first wave of export controls came in um, basically saying, hey, companies like NVIDIA, you can't just sell your best stuff to China. Um, you have to you know, essentially like tone down the capabilities of these systems. There were a bunch of loopholes in that strategy that we talked about uh, last episode, actually. Um, and so now the, the, the goal is to actually close these loopholes. Currently, China can ship, uh, sorry, uh, NVIDIA can ship to China, for example, their uh, A800 and H800 GPUs, which are supposed to be scaled down versions of their fully powered A100 and H100 uh, GPUs. In practice, the 800 versions that are meant for Chinese export actually kind of are powerful enough to be really deeply problematic. And so um, NVIDIA has actually you know, got a strong incentive, as we discussed last week, to like just ship the crap out of those things to China as fast as they possibly can. Um, and uh, and try to to sell you know to make money off the Chinese market while they can while the export controls are still uh, loose enough that that's allowed. It now seems that that window may be closing, and so the Biden administration setting in some new rules to kind of cut down on uh, the A800 and H800 series GPUs. A lot of other GPUs are also going to be affected. It seems um, so. This is going to be uh, going to include GPUs from uh, AMD, uh, potentially from Intel as well. So. A pretty big step in the export control kind of story. And um, yeah, interesting to see the Biden administration kind of step this up. I think it's a much more technically informed set of, uh, of uh, export controls that we're uh, about to see kick in. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm personally happy with what I've heard so far. Uh, it remains to be seen when we see the full, the full thrust of them. Right. It appears that uh, in many ways, this kind of is an update of the controls from last year. So there were these regulations released last October, and these new measures closed essentially loopholes that allowed Intel and NVIDIA and Intel to create special chips uh, for the Chinese market that kind of were similar to what we have, but you could actually, you know, uh, sell there sort of because of a loophole, not not exactly. But uh, yeah, this is basically clamping down more 
on that and expanding beyond China to some countries in the Middle East and elsewhere. So, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah, that consistency, I think, is is good to see, you know, going beyond China and having one set of rules for everybody. And continuing on with that trend, this has been like chips have been <laughs> the topic of the month yeah. for us. Uh, the next story is TSMC expects permanent U.S. approval to supply chip tools to its China factory. Uh, that's pretty much the story. The U.S. Department of uh, Commerce, uh, its Bureau of Industry and Security, has advised TSMC to apply for some program which would allow the chip maker to receive exports without separate approvals. Basically, this permanent U.S. approval that would impact uh, the ability to produce chips in China. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's always this interesting game where there are export controls and then there are kind of licenses. Uh, and approvals that allow you to kind of get around the export controls in practice. And, um, you know, th- th- what we have right now is TSMC basically saying, hey, yeah, we, we think we're going to get permission to keep supplying our China plant with U.S. chip making tools indefinitely, um, which actually reflects kind of a, a backtracking of U.S. policy, export control policy de facto in China. Um, if this is a blanket authorization that they expect for like all node sizes, in other words, like down to, you know, three and five nanometer nodes, that seems like a really big gap. Um, I, I personally actually need to look into this in more detail for, for my work. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a very noteworthy, um, exemption if it's as, as blanket as it seems to be framed in this article. Um, what, um, yeah, what, what we're, Looking at here is essentially, I think all these countries just trying to figure out what's the kind of comfortable equilibrium. Um, and yeah, uh, what's by the way, so this program that allows you to do this, to, to just keep, keep shipping um, despite the export controls, is if you manage to get a validated end user license, uh, which would allow you to yeah, receive exports without separate approvals. And so that's what TSMC's China branch is, uh, is, is pursuing and apparently expecting to receive. Um, so, yeah. Right. To get into a little bit more detail, uh, it seems that last year TSMC was granted this one year authorization uh, by the US that covered its factory in Nanjing, China, that makes these less advanced 28 nanometer chips. So, that might be a caveat there. Yeah, complicated export controls, licensing, all of this. But uh, the short version is. You know, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> there is a lot of stuff going on, yeah. <laughs> and last story for the section, Southeast Asia eyes hands-off AI rules defying EU ambition. So this is kind of an overview from Reuters saying that Southeast Asian countries are taking this more business-friendly approach to AI regulation as opposed to the EU, which has been working on this EU AI Act that does quite a bit to regulate uh, things. Specifically, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is circling a draft guide to AI ethics and governance that uh, asks companies to consider cultural differences and does not prescribe risk categories and things like that. So seems to be more hands-off, as the article says, uh, a little bit in line with Japan 
which seems to have been kind of hands-off and, and less strict on generative AI via their past announcements. Uh, so, yeah, interesting to see how different parts of the world will uh, kind of go its own different ways. Britain, the UK, also notably not uh, in lockstep with the EU and might be more business friendly to uh, kind of uh, attract AI talent and, and companies. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. Like, I, I didn't know much, to be honest, about uh, ASEAN's um operations and, and and how they yeah how they work to set policy in their their member uh, countries before reading this article it seems like they are kind of um uh, sort of like in the same way the US likes to delegate a lot of power to states so ASEAN seems like it tends to do this sort of thing and and not prescribe but like just give general guidance and that seems to be the framing here so i'm not sure how uh, how let's say inconsistent with their usual operating model this would be um, though I'm sure the EU would have preferred to see them come down harder on this. Uh, they, yeah, apparently they, they've been advising companies to put in place AI risk assessment structures and AI governance training. But then the article says uh, they're leaving the specifics to companies and local regulators. So it really is just like, you know, leave it to the states, leave it to the countries to kind of, and the, and the companies to, to figure this stuff out. Um, you know, we, we're seeing this debate over like, is it hands-off? Is, is hands-off the right model? Uh, or is it uh, kind of more hands-on in the way that the EU is doing it? Or um, maybe a third way is, uh, as the US is fond of saying in other policy contexts, a um, like a small, what do they say, small yard, tall fence strategy, right? Where you, you pick a small number of, of use cases and you really regulate them hard, but you try to let other things unfold as openly as possible. That's you know something that has been floated in, in AI safety with the licensing stuff just for frontier models and, and nothing else. So yeah, kind of interesting to see. Um, I don't think that, I don't know how much, you know, how much information is really here. Cause again, I don't know how consistent this is with ASEAN's usual philosophy on this stuff. Um, was it ever really in the cards for them to, uh, to go full on in the EU model, but uh, I wish I knew more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're knowledgeable about this, feel free to contact us and, and give us your, yeah. uh, information. Cause you know, yeah, We're if you can schmucks. inform us, <laughs> if you can inform us and let us know what we should be saying, then please do. On to the last section, synthetic media and art. The first story is AI image detectors are being used to discredit the real horrors of war. Uh, so as you can might imagine, this is a bit of a rough story. The highlight is that an AI image detector, a tool that can tell you if an image is produced by AI or not, is being used to claim that a photograph of a burnt corpse of a baby killed in Hamas's attack on Israel, which happened recently, of course, was generated by AI, and this is being disputed. So this image was tweeted by Israel's official Twitter account and has since been spread widely. So it's it's meant to show the very negative impact of Hamas's attack in Israel and the human consequences. And of course, the claim that it is AI generated would mean that Israel is spreading AI generated misinformation. So this is something that uh, has been discussed in other cases that uh, people who advocate for human rights and who sort of try to show human rights abuses have had cases uh, or, or discussed how 
the claim that things are AI generated could make it harder to advocate and, and really present the truth of certain situations. And this is a very concrete example that uh, is concerning. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's it gets you into that question of false positives and false negatives, right? Like there are times when uh, an AI generated image sneaks by and then we end up believing in a story that's fake, or there are times when a real story gets undermined by people claiming that it was AI generated. And it's it just creates this horrible mess where we're already so polarized. We already see what we want to see and all the evidence that's in front of us. This gives us another excuse to just be like, ah, well, you know, this this fact that's inconvenient is fake or, you know, introduce fake facts into a, into a discussion as well. So just, yeah, uh, I, I can't wait for the 2024 U S presidential election. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the story goes into a bit of detail on, you know, all, all the details, how you can inspect whether an image is AI or not. Uh, it doesn't seem to be AI generated to be clear based on expert information, so I guess as a pro tip, just don't trust what these detectors are saying, right? Because they are just aren't very good. They might have false positives. They probably have false negatives. So just be generally skeptical, I guess, and, and look for reliable sources as the main thing. And that is actually going to be it for this episode. Apologies for ending on a downer note. But thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to the text newsletter at lastweekin.ai. You can also contact us at contact at lastweekin.ai that's the email to give us your thoughts suggestions expertise and whatever else you feel like sharing of course we'd appreciate it if you help us grow by recommending a podcast sharing it giving us reviews all that sort of thing but regardless we mainly care what you keep tuning in so please do keep listening as we keep releasing our episodes.